Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome back to Game of Thrones 2 Electric Bukalu. I'm your host, Anthony. This week, to help me cover Tyrion's third POV chapter in Clash of Kings, Dr. A. Keith Kelly, professor of English at Georgia Gwinnett College. And I have wanted to interview him for a long time, so I'm looking forward to this conversation. Dr. Kelly is the author of Power and Subversion in Game of Thrones. It actually is a collection of essays written by many friends of this program. So do please check out Power and Subversion in Game of Thrones. And then after my conversation with Keith, I include an excerpt of my conversation with medievalist Val Garver. I've been noticing a theme of the consequences of hostages and wards in Martin's world. Clash of Kings seems to have several characters who are fostered in another great house And then those wards grow up and have certain feelings toward the houses that reared them. Not always good. So anyway, I ask her about that. All right, without further ado, here's Dr. Keith Kelly. Anthony. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Uh, I love technology. Lovely to hear your voice. How are you today? I'm doing well now that I've I've actually gone to an entirely different office, different computer, but... I see, I I see. I'm here now and and excited to talk about Game of Thrones. Yes, very good. Keith, I love Tyrion chapters because more than any other character, Martin provides his interior voice. And it's usually opposite of what he actually says out loud. But you, you really get to hear what's going on inside that head of his. Right, right. I don't know if he does that for other characters. I mean, he does. I, I know that he doesn't do it nearly as much. I think Tyrion is sort of his favorite character to do that with. Right. I think that's true. I, I know that he does it maybe a little bit with Jon Snow. Yeah, possibly. Yeah, possibly. Um, but not, there's, not, there's not nearly as much going on inside Jon Snow's head, though. No, he, no, he's a pretty simple person. And usually he says what he's thinking so he doesn't have to have that counter uh-huh. uh inner monologue uh-huh. right <laughs> right um do you feel like Tyrion is i've been asked this before and i i, I don't I, I kind of vacillate on my answers i'm curious to hear what you think do you think that Tyrion has something of a mary sue problem do you think that martin is sort of projecting a bit of wish fulfillment and sort of creating an ideal character with Tyrion? You mean uh, as in Martin putting himself in the book in that way? Yes. Yeah. I, I don't. That's interesting. I, I don't. I mean, I don't know a ton about Martin. I mean, we see him, you know, in interviews and his his discussions about Game of Thrones. I never get the impression that he's as sarcastic or 
snarky as Tyrion Lannister, sure. but but it might be his inner voice is. <laughs> um, if he it, maybe Tyrion is the uh, you know the italics uh-huh. uh, of his own of his own voice. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, well, certainly I think he makes ends up making Tyrion the uh, if there is a a single protagonist in the Song of Ice and Fire, which clearly there isn't. Yeah. But if we were to say there was a main one, I, I would argue that it's it, it is Tyrion. He he intersects most of the the plot lines, um, the other protagonists, and uh, yeah, uh, he he does sort of play the role of of Martin in that sense. Yeah, and in terms and, of word count, his POV chapters are by far oh, yeah. the most. Um, yeah. I do. I, I, there there is some question about whether or not he might be a tragic character in the end and maybe he's something of an anti-hero. I mean, that, that is something that Martin could pull off if he wants to. And, and, and certainly Tyrion has dark moments. Right. I mean, he's, yeah, he's a very complex character and a lot of his story is deeply tragic. Um, so, but, but at the same time, you know, compelling from the very first scene when we uh-huh. see him talking with Jon Snow, he's an interesting person. Absolutely. Um, let me go ahead and read my synopsis, and then we can get into the, the chapter here. You bet. Cersei is livid. She demands that all letters from Stannis be destroyed. She also wants the tongue of any man who questions Joffrey's legitimacy. Pycelle thinks that this is quite prudent. Tyrion and Varys have other ideas, including beginning a disinformation campaign Tyrion leaves the small council and discusses chain-making with several blacksmiths. Then he is helped by Braun, Shataya, and Varys in an elaborate scheme to visit Shay. Uh, I almost feel like he's putting as much mental effort into his visit to Shay as he is into wartime planning. Yeah, yeah. It certainly it seems like he gets the other stuff out of the way so that he could get onto his, <laughs> okay. his Okay. Oh focus. good. So yeah. he so his priorities uh, we see the his priorities on display in this chapter. Is what you're saying? <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. He's never been bashful about saying what his priorities are, so <laughs> it, it's in line with his own with his own statement. So uh Keith, what would you like to talk about today? The floor is yours. Um well I like this idea of of starting with what uh what Tyrion's inner voice is saying, because I think the way that he talks to and manipulates his uh-huh. sister uh, is is really brilliant rhetoric, and, and the fact that we're in the know, you know, that first yes. line of his thoughts only because you're guilty. Yeah, that's right. Um, everyone, right, right, everyone knows, but Cersei is so adamant in her declaration of innocence and that these missives are are total slanders yeah she protests Um, a bit much does she really think that anyone in the room doesn't realize that they are true it's everyone in the room has to play the game and it's all for cersei's benefit right and every but everyone has to say the right thing and uh and be shocked and be you know appalled by this and this whole thing is a display it it is kind of crazy. You think I like who knows what Pycelle actually knows, but you you imagine he knows more than he's letting on, right? Right. But uh, yeah, everyone else everyone else is probably recognizing this little display for what it is. Right, and you never. I mean, Pycelle's an odd character too because he's not as dumb as he 
yeah puts forth though i don't think he's as complexly written by any stretch as some of the other characters that put on one face and then mm-hmm. play another because i don't know that his private face is is really that intelligent it's more just uh cunning and yeah you know. that's right and the, the show they do this little thing where they kind of show his physicality change when he's alone right they don't, they don't you don't really get that kind of hint in the book no no you don't and they make him a little bit more lascivious yeah. in the in sure. the show <laughs> the visual medium adds to that i guess right but yeah but when Tyrion is playing the the game very cleverly and plays his sister twists her this way and that way while while seeming to play into you know her hands and her you know this the big lie <laughs> <laughs> the big lie you know that this chapter did have quite a few parallels i mean it's almost like boy politics hasn't changed much uh, have they no. you know they reveal something sorted about you and you make up a lie that's very similar about them and then everyone kind of like goes about their day and does doesn't really right. care all that much right and in the end right like how much of the small folk how much does it impact them when the when the the important people are trading their lies i imagine that the small folks saw a long time ago oh yeah everybody well, else and it, it probably will like Littlefinger says he says they don't love stannis right He's he's a prickly guy, so they're more likely to believe a lie about him being cuckolded. And it's almost like, yeah, confirmation bias. It was it was true. It, yep. It's true in all kinds of context. Right, right. You're right. I mean the right, the misinformation, the disinformation, uh-huh. the counter disinformation, and all of it really just playing on the um, confirmation bias and what people want to hear. And the right, right. Yeah. Now. This little show in the small council, it does happen to be working with a rumor that is true, right? It, 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 Cersei, Cersei absolutely uh, was unfaithful to Robert, and Joffrey absolutely is not Robert's biological child. And it's almost, they're almost at a disadvantage uh, because the letter that's being circulated by Stannis doesn't have the benefit of the flourish. And and I think that's what Littlefinger brings to the table. He's like, uh, you, you, you want to spread this information? Leave it to me. I, what this needs is a little bit of flourish. You, you need something that's like Stannis was cuckolded by a half-wit fool in Motley. That's the kind of story that's going to take hold. Right, and Stannis right. is like, nope. I'm going to tell the truth no matter what. This is what it's. This is what's true, and it's almost like he's bringing a knife to a gunfight. Because in some ways, he's he's the Ned Stark without the charisma and honor. <laughs> I mean, the honor, yes, but in terms of that, yes, uh, the honorable charisma. Right? He he said, well, this is what's going on. Well, yeah, but you didn't. You didn't make it a very good story. <laughs> One, you told the story that everyone knows, and you told it in a way that's not yeah. interesting. If you're going to yeah, tell the same story, the, at least you got to tell the story with flourish. Dress it up, sure. right? Yeah, the uh, that that moment when uh, um, when he talks when Littlefinger is talking about it, the the fool and the grotesque fool, the lackwit. <laughs> that's one of the, the, these moments in the book where Martin inserts these comments when. When Pycelle says, 
Surely you do not mean to suggest that Lady <laughs> Celise would bring a fool into her bed? Yeah. Um, I love it. <laughs> that's what he seizes on? <laughs> the idea is, yeah, this is this is a mm-hmm. great story because... Um, and then, of course, you know, little things are uh-huh. Marcus. You'd have to be a fool to want to bed. So that's these right. Smart. That's right. Now, you mentioned uh, the way that Tyrion's playing Cersei. So I'm going to go ahead and read this little section here. So what would you have us do? His sister demanded. Very little. Let them whisper. They'll grow bored with the tale soon enough. Any man with a thimble of sense will see it for a clumsy attempt to justify usurping the crown. Does Stannis offer proof? How could he when it never happened? Tyrion gave his sister the sweetest smile. And of course, now now she has to play the game with him, right? Because, right, because right. <laughs> of course it didn't happen, so we should we should act as if this is spurious. And of course, you know, Cersei is looking for any kind of, you know, any any kind of political rung on the ladder and and Tyrion offers it to her. Yeah. It's it's actually kind of effortless. He, it's almost like those two are no match at all. And I do think Cersei has intelligence. I don't think that she's an un- unintelligent person. And I, I've heard people say that. Um, I just think that Tyrion is is much better at this kind of thing. Yeah, and I think Cersei's, one of her problems in dealing with Tyrion is she always underestimates mm-hmm. him, dismisses him, and thinks of him as a simple... Uh, a dwarf in mm. physical mm. stature and mental stature, and he's disgusting. And uh, she she doesn't give him any credit, even though he shows her over and over that he's in- very yes. clever. Yeah. And uh, she, she refuses. It's almost as if she acknowledges his value, that it diminishes her entire uh, view of him, which is he's a monster that killed her mother. Right. I think she's disgusted by him. And then... But here's here's the trouble. I think that she thinks everyone else is disgusted by him. And so she makes the mistake right. of thinking, well, no one's going to take him seriously, so I don't have to. And that's just simply not true. There are all kinds of folks who take him seriously because they're able to see past his disability. Um, and sir, it's, just, it's just such a... It's such an obstacle for her that she never sees his value. Yeah, it's a very good point. She she's very much an ableist mm. and is very narrow minded in that way. Anyone who has an apparent flaw or disability, particularly a physical one, she utterly dismisses uh, them of you know, any of having any value. I think Varys has um, the same issue. I think that, um, and I think he uses it to his advantage. I think that almost everyone, right. including Ned, including Tyrion, view Varys as not to be trusted because of his particular uh, reputation as a eunuch. No one views him as as nearly the threat he is, but also almost like he's dangerous because you can't trust him. You know, there's also the, there's almost this dual view of Varys. And it, it's it's very similar to Tyrion's problem. It's like the the reputation will always walk into the room before the actual person does. Right. It, it's interesting that you say you know that Cersei com- always underestimates Tyrion or, or accords him no value, but others recognize it, and even some of the most um, discerning characters in this very chapter, for instance. Um, 
Varys clearly has this respect for for Tyrion, though as a character of disability, he might see in him uh, a you know a kindred spirit in mm. that sense. But Bronn, Bronn is as as pragmatic and cynical yeah. and and self-serving and judgmental as possible. <laughs> yeah. uh, but but he he latches on with Tyrion. He sees Tyrion's value and um, how Tyrion can can help him climb the ladder. Yeah, and he doesn't. He, I mean, in the, <laughs> I think he says, "Go fuck yourself, dwarf," or something in this. In yes, this he does. Right, he does. So it it is one of these. Uh, Bronn has figured out pretty quickly what Tyrion needs from him and what he does not need from him. Right. And he's very brazen about it. But I do like the, the you shine a light on the, the relationship between Tyrion and Varys. And I'll just read the how this chapter ends. It says, Tyrion let the eunuch help him to his mount. Lord Varys, he said from the saddle, sometimes I feel as though you are the best friend I have in King's Landing. And sometimes I feel you are my worst enemy. Varys replies, odd, I think quite the same of you. I think, if anything, that exchange bespeaks respect, right? They're not really talking about whether they're best friends or not. Uh, They they both are recognizing that the other one has game. And and I and I think that maybe for both of these, that that is actually also a show of, of affection. Like I, I recognize the mind I see here. Right, and I think they're too. too they're feeling out what the other's motives even uh-huh. is, and I think they they want to find a similar motive. Of course, as it moves along, we learn that their motives are in fact fairly similar in many ways. With um, one key but difference, that motive is such a rare but, uh, one. You're right. They 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 are very. They have overlapping interests for sure. The, I think that the key difference is at the end of the day. Tyrion cannot let go of being a Lannister. And he's going to do what he thinks is best for his house. And in that way, I think he's very much like Tywin, even though he goes about it differently. But he does care about justice. And I think if I'm reading, I don't know if I'm actually reading Varys correctly. I do think he cares about justice. And I don't think he gives a damn about anyone's last name. And and part of the difference is, he himself has none. Yeah, <laughs> Tyrion is a Lannister, and though he may, in some ways, despise that n- name because of uh-huh. you know what it has brought him in some ways, and the the you know the love and hate, mostly hate relationship with Tywin, um, he can't escape it because it's the only thing, really, in one sense, that kept him alive when he was born, right, and that gives him the ability to move in the circles that he moves in and, and have the money. That yeah, he, has. Yeah. You know, he, he has a lot of value, puts a lot of value in money or at least uses it in very yeah important ways. But, and Varys doesn't have that. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. So we've been talking about power and we've been talking about, masculinity a little bit we've been talking about disability a little bit i hear there is a good book <laughs> that covers all of the above that is available that is right. to me on the internet I, I wonder if you could recommend something like that 
Yeah, I've, I, I have heard of a book like that. Um, I think the title is Power and Subversion in Game of yeah, Thrones. Yeah, very good. Edit, edited by yours truly. And it, it's a collection of great essays. Um, I, I take only the credit of really um, identifying, inviting these scholars in to, to write about the, uh, the... We focus a little bit more on the show, um, but the, the ideas are, are obviously very overlapping. Yes. And there's a great article in it on... Uh, disability there are articles in there on uh, masculinity um, pow- power and subversion the subversion of genre of expectation audience expectation um, and so forth is the overarching theme of the book but uh, yeah we have scholars from scholar from Poland from Canada several from yeah. the US I will just mention that we've had on several times uh, uh, Jan Doolittle Wilson. And right. um and, and of course she she writes about brand the broken and, and disability and um I do I think Aunt, is is Andrew Howe is he a, an author in that book as yeah, well yeah Andrew Howe who's who's been in your your yes. series before as well is in the book yeah and yeah and Jen Wilson's article on disability is really a, a, a great deep dive into into that topic and of course Tyrion Tyrion is a major factor in there as is Varys and the publisher is McFarland McFarland and of course um McFarland um I, I always appreciate McFarland for their modestly priced books you know <laughs> they're they're not right they're, right they're it, not it's... gonna be we're not looking at like a 70 dollar book for sure uh, but people can get the book and other on other websites on the internet, including the big one, if they want to. That's right. It's available pretty widely. Now, this book focuses a lot on on sort of the show characters. Uh, not to say that it doesn't also touch on the characters' differences in the books. But how did the book come about? And and maybe talk a little bit about your exp- your first exposure to the world of Ice and Fire. Yeah, the uh, my first exposure. I read uh, Game of Thrones as the first book, and um, Ice and Fire. Very soon after it came out, uh, many years ago, I don't remember what that the date of that publication wow. so, was. Wow! So, so um, you've been uh, you've had a relationship with this project for a very long time. Yeah, and I, yeah. So I read that book, and then uh, I think when I when I read Game of Thrones. Clash of Kings came out like a year after I finished it, A Game of Thrones. Mm. Um, and uh, so I read it, but then it was a wait, you know, as each subsequent book came out. Um, and I ended up uh, just sort of giving up on it because I kind of lost the thread because of the, the, the gaps in the publication. So Clash of Kings was 1999. I think I must have read Game of Thrones in ninety. Eight, Clash of Kings came out, and then I lost the thread, and went back when I heard that they were going going to be making a mm. show um, at the end of you know the two thousand two thousand ten two thousand eleven when it came out, and I read all the other books. Then I started watching the started watching the show, and uh, the the my real ac- academic interest in it came when I gave a a paper um, at the uh, Conference, the International Association on the Fantastic in the Arts, mm-hmm. and I gave a paper on on Game of Thrones, and this was before the C, before season eight even aired, 
um, so that it had not ended. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so poorly. Um, and uh, it was about it touching upon the, the political moment um, and the idea of genre that it, that it builds as builds its power by subverting expectations within the high fantasy right. genre. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's just someone in the audience happened to be an acquisitions editor and they asked me if I would be interested in doing a book on Game of Thrones. And I said, I didn't know that I had enough uh, to write a whole monograph on it, but mm -hmm. certainly a collection of essays to edit that and bring scholars together that I would, would be interested in doing that. And, and then, uh, so we started the project um, and uh, the, the as season eight came out and then the, the, focus on it in some ways shifted to the way that it ended and that the ultimate subversion of audience expectations, <laughs> meaning that by, by which I mean that we all expected yeah. some sort of uh -huh. good ending and I don't mean good, but I mean yeah, satisfying. Yeah. And, and we did not uh -huh. really get that. We got the opposite. Yeah. It was um, almost a, but, it was uh, almost a, you know, almost sacrificing the narrative for some kind of subversion of expectations. It felt to me. Right. I, the, the simple thing, I suppose you could say, is they they stuck with the technique that had made them so you know, so compelling mm. by building up expectations and then subverting them. The problem is they'd built up all these character arcs and mm. plot lines and said, okay, well, well, we'll conclude them in ways that no one expects and that subverts these yeah. arcs. Um, but which I think was a big you know, a big mistake. Um, Cersei's end was, she deserved much better. Jamie is completely undermined his entire character arc. And, and even Tyrion, who in some ways you could say it fit with his character arc and his ability to manipulate people with his words and his rhetoric, like he does in this chapter with Cersei. Um, the end that he engineers is wholly unsatisfying because it, well, you know, it puts Bran on the throne and who who gives a damn about Bran? <laughs> well, certainly the show oh. did not give a damn about Bran because they wrote him out of an entire season. Uh. <laughs> right, right. And while they kept uh, like dangling these promises of things that he might uh -huh. do, uh, he, he never, never did, did anything. anything. <laughs> um, let um, me, I'm going to, all right, we've been talking about rumor and slander, and I, I was wondering if you would uh, allow me to engage in a little bit of rumor and slander related to Podrick Payne. Oh, okay. Yeah, because Pod, I, I'd forgotten when I came back to this how yeah. shy and pathetic a, a figure Pod is. At this point okay, in the books. I'm going to read this little section here, and I'm going to absolutely build a castle on sand. But here it goes. Uh, within he found a boy of 12 laying out clothes on the bed, his squire, such as he was, Podrick Payne, who was so shy he was furtive. Tyrion never quite had gotten over the suspicion that his father had inflicted the boy on him as a joke. So it's a, it's a throwaway line. And uh, on right. that throwaway line, I'm going to suggest Podrick is a plant. Tywin has foisted this boy on Tyrion so that he might spy on his son. What, what do you think about this? 
Well, it's certainly never occurred to me, and it doesn't really pan out um, not, not, in terms of yet. Todd becoming a good spy. <laughs> not yet. I, <laughs> we know that Shay is something of a plant at some point. And I wonder, because, so we rushed. know that Tywin actually does care about spying on Tyrion. Uh, and Tywin does know certain things about Tyrion that he, he shouldn't know. Like he like how how does he know that that Shay, you know he says don't take that whore to court at one point. How does he know that he has a, a bed warmer? I I don't know, and I and I wonder if I wonder if that suggests that Tywin is keeping track of his son in various ways, and so so this sort of feeds my suspicion of Podrick at this point. Right, and and the problem right now is I'm I'm having, I, I can't remember where where in the books we sort of leave Pod as the development of his character, as opposed to Podrick in in the yeah, yeah. show, who becomes very very close with Tyrion, and and I think in the show, of course, I would dismiss any suggestion <laughs> that Pod is a plant, sure. even if he was in the beginning, he's not. By the time he's, I think you're character. right. But I don't remember where we, I don't remember where we leave him in the books. He, he's such a kind of a yeah, it's side. Yeah, no, character. no. He he's one of these characters that is um, underwritten, and I think that it, that is one of Martin's deceptive devices. He he will underwrite a character un- until he wants to use them in some way. Now, I it it is. I I think that. Finally, with Podrick, he does go with Brienne uh, in the books as well as the show. Right. But, of course, this is not this is not anything that the text suggests. I'm not sort of getting this from a close reading. This is absolutely uh, a rumor and slander on my part. Well, it would make total sense, though, because if Tywin appoints him as his squire, mm-hmm. um, he would appear, I think, to Tywin as someone who, A, by his family, owes yeah. some allegiance and B is entirely manipulatable and intimidatable because he, he's just sort of a, a utterly bashful <laughs> wallflower who I think Tywin could figure he could uh-huh. just glare at and Pod would spill uh-huh. everything. Um, I was just going to point out that this chapter is almost entirely left out of the show with the exception of the letter. My grandfather's stupidity in the field of battle is the reason Rob Stark is Uncle Jamie in the first place. His life is in danger. At war, all our lives are in danger. I heard a disgusting lie about Uncle Jamie. And you? Our enemies will say anything to weaken your claim to the throne. It's not a claim. The throne is mine. No one believes this foul gossip. Someone believes it. Father had other children. Besides me and Tom and Emma What are you asking? I'm asking if he fucked other women when he grew tired of you. How many bastards does he have running? <laughs> By death. Um, we do we do have some discussion right. about what to do about the letter. 
but you've got all kinds of like the the pleasure house not in the show the the characters at the pleasure house the chain that was is such an important plot or i guess plot point in this book he's he's creating a chain specifically because he has a battle tactic in mind that he wants to employ on blackwater bay and of course right. on the show it just becomes all about the wildfire um with without sort of any mechanism to trap the ships in the bay um the so the chain is introduced in this chapter and you know i, I guess we do have podrick is a bit different in the show he's he's aged up and he's sexualized you know he's he, he's right. he's a very different character in the show in, in fact almost everything about this chapter is different on the screen with the exception of the letter i would say yeah that's right because i i was trying to remember if there was a chain at all at blackwater bay no um <laughs> the- because the the wildfire you say that's yeah. the whole the 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 trap is that's the right. wildfire um, and I didn't remember any chain. They, but, they did not bring the chain uh, in uh, to this, uh, but they did bring a chain into the later parts of the season because they used the chain to hoist a zombie dragon out of the drink. So, so, so they <laughs> so they subtracted a chain and they added a chain. <laughs> right, right. Um, I'll I'll point out that uh, introductions in this chapter we we hear of Maester Franken. We learned for the first time that the Florence have prominent ears. I thought that was a nice little <laughs> Right. I had to read that a couple of times, that, that little section. Yeah. So this this helps what them, say, the helps them create their their uh their fiction about uh, Lady Celise, right? Um we're right. introduced to Iron Belly and Salorian, who are both blacksmiths. Uh we have the love artists from the Summer Isles, uh, Shataya and her daughter Alayaya, I guess is how you say that name. Okay. And um, it show, I would say that you know there is a lot of show differences, but um, um, I would not say any notable departures in this chapter. I mean, I, I was tempted to say Cersei's honor, <laughs> her public honor, but I think that she might have given that up a while back. So right. Well, the the the. This, the chain, the having all of these craftsmen make the chain and without revealing yeah. what it's being used, and for also to the reader, not revealed. So, so right. did you read this book before you? Now, of course, it wasn't in the show. So, when you were reading this chapter, what did you make of the chain, or was that just some, a curiosity? I I was trying to remember that when I went back and reread it um, the other day, what I thought about the chain when when this was introduced to it because i know the the you know the tactic of using the chain to stop ships is not an i mean it's a very old one it's one that i knew of oh is that right Um, i don't remember historical episodes that have this device yeah yeah okay um yeah i mean it was used during the napoleonic uh wars quite frequently Uh, but before that uh, it was used in in uh, I think they were used in ancient you know the ancient period in to stop Greek triremes even. All right, um, interesting. Uh, I wouldn't quote me on that, but I know in the, in the Napoleonic era it it was. 
So I don't remember on the first read if I suspected that he was having this massive chain built for that purpose at the time. Though obviously in the book, when he when the purpose of it is revealed, oh that 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 makes complete sense. Um, yeah, you almost need to have a map in your head when you're reading this book, because in a way that you maybe don't have to in the first book, because it's easy to forget that. You know that King's Landing has a Blackwater Bay at this right. early stage of Clash, and so why would it matter? What and of course, very few people would even know about the ancient naval <laughs> naval warfare, right? So you, right. you're you're probably one of the very few that that recognize it as such. Yeah, I'll have to look that up after uh, we're done talking to see how far back that uh-huh. that goes. Um, but. Uh, yeah, and I don't remember. It would be, I, I would love to think, oh, I saw that one coming. <laughs> um, but I, my, my guess is I was as curious as everyone else. Like, wh- why is he building this chain? And I also don't know if in first reading I knew truly how massive the links were until the purpose of the chain is revealed. And yeah. then I realize, okay, oh, we're talking huge huge links. Yeah, that's right. To be able to stop ships. That's right. And it's so important that we are told that he's absolutely prioritizing the chain over and against the queen's command for more armor and swords. Right. Uh and you would think, you know, <laughs> we've got a battle going. <laughs> we got people who are going to siege this place pretty soon. That seems like a pretty high priority, the armor and the swords. Um, right. And the blacksmiths, of course, have been threatened by Cersei, and he and he is basically saying, "Nope, drop everything, and I don't care if you view this as sort of below your craft. You're gonna be creating chain links for the foreseeable right. future." What, what does he tell the the arrogant armorer? You either make <laughs> chains or be in one. Yeah, 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 yeah. Either make me chains, or you'll find yourself in the chains. And he right. doesn't. He walks away and doesn't look back. Um, but it's a mic drop moment, right? <laughs> really. And it's one of these times where it's like, uh, no need for an interior voice because uh, Tyrion seems to be thinking and saying the same exact thing. Right. Keith, I, I really appreciate it, uh, you coming on, and I appreciate you navigating all the technical difficulties with my email. I know that, <laughs> that was an issue, and um, uh, swapping out computers at the last minute, but I, I really enjoyed this conversation. I'm glad we made it work. Yeah, me too. I, I've, I've enjoyed it. It was a nice respite from what is otherwise a busy day filled with meetings, not all of which will be this pleasant. <laughs> sure, sure. All right, fantastic. And now Throwback Thursday with comic Steve Osborne. Any big St. Patrick's Day plans? I have a green shirt. Oh. I bought a green shirt. That's good. And, um, yeah. <laughs> I always get caught without a green shirt. Uh. It's a little odd because when I was a kid, I would wear green a lot. Oh. And uh, so I, I would wear green quite a bit. Now that I'm an adult, I, it's like I, I've realized I, I own no green clothing. So this year, I'm not going to get caught off guard. I have a green shirt. Nice. I have like three, anyway. at least three pairs of green shoes. Four. I know that. I've seen I've seen some of these. Four green yeah. Shoes. yeah, green's not a problem for me. I don't know about my 
shirt situation but uh-huh. and plus now because i took my 23 and me and i realized and i found out that i'm irish uh-huh. and this whole holiday you know well you should have a shirt that says kiss me i'm irish yeah and, and now that i it's saint patrick's day and i'm irish i can go around people that are you know dressed up or whatever and just like shout at them you know my culture is not your costume when is uh saint patrick's day it's today Oh crap! I'm not wearing my green shirt. <laughs> After all that, no, I thought I thought you were asking me because it was coming up. Like just general, like you know, <laughs> this is this, this is what our relationship is has uh, sunk into this level of small talk. <laughs> so so St. Patty's is coming up. You have yeah, big plans. Exactly. <laughs> Let's see. All right, I did that. Next week, I guess I'll mention Arbor Day. <laughs> Val, I have a question about sort of a, a bigger picture Clash of Kings theme that I was hoping okay. to foist on you. Okay. Um, so I, I didn't give you a heads up ahead of time, so <laughs> don't feel bad if you have to say, I have to go research about that. So we've met <laughs> two characters, one being uh, Theon and the other being Littlefinger, who were mm-hmm. they were wards in a different house right so so yes. theon was a ward of winterfell and littlefinger was a ward at river run and i mean i guess theon was something of a hostage as well i'm not sure that their lives would have been significantly different in in those situations but in both cases they grow up and they seek revenge in some way <laughs> <laughs> on, the, on the house that reared them. And so it, it's clearly a theme in this book that Martin's playing with. My sense is that, and correct me if I'm wrong, my sense is that having a ward like that is supposed to build relationships so that there isn't a warfare between houses. And I'm so, but clearly these in these two cases, it kind of backfired or something like that. Yeah, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about just the practice of having another house raise your, you know, young lords and ladies, and what what the purpose of that was, and did it ever backfire? I, I'm just curious about that. Yeah, well, I think again, it would depend a little bit, like on what time and place we were talking about. But if we think about kind of the period that Martin bases Game of Thrones on, this did happen with boys, that they would be sent off into another household for kind of training and being looked after. Uh But I think there's a big difference when that's done by choice, when the family chooses to send their son to another household Mm. versus when the child who's sent is a hostage, similar sort of to Theon, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. So... um, a kind of parallel in a way that uh, Theon always brings to mind for me is um, this case of a boy named William who lived in the ninth century. And his father was a man named Bernard of Septimania. Um, and he was accused of um, an adulterous affair with the king's wife mm. um, and was really on the outs. Um, Where? With... Sorry, I'm so, this is oh, it's yeah. a fascinating name, Septimania. Where is Septimania located? <laughs> it's like roughly like northern the the territory that he controlled would have been sort of where roughly northern Spain, southern France is okay, now, got it, around got the it. Pyrenees, around the Pyrenees. Good uh-huh. question. So he, although we know, I should 
sort of add something here, which is that we know in the ninth century, these Frankish magnates, as we call them, these aristocrats, they controlled estates that were scattered. They didn't, they did not necessarily have like one spot, uh-huh. um, like later aristocrats might've had, but in any case, he get he's on the outs with Charles the bald during a civil war. So Charles the bald is one of the grandsons of Charlemagne. Uh-huh. And after the death of their father, who's Charlemagne's only heir, the three sons engage in a civil war. So this doesn't go well for Bernard. And he ends up having to send his son, William as a hostage to the court of Charles the bald. Um, Yeah. (laughs) And the reason we know a lot about this and the reason it's really fascinating is that his mother, whose name is Dwoda, this is William's mother, Bernard of Septimania's wife Uh wrote a whole book for him on how to get by a court and how to, how to lead a good life. Oh, that's fascinating. And it survives. It's amazing. It's also, I I just want to add for people who are listening that you can get this book in translation. There's a great translation by a woman named Carol Neal, N-E-E-L. It's very accessible. Um, And it's, I think, a really interesting read to see like what advice a mother would. And what's the book called? The, well, it's just... A handbook. I mean, is what the if, if we were to give it a kind of proper title, but the translation is called a handbook for William. A handbook for William, written by um... a woman named Dwoda, which is D H U O D A. It's not a name I think people use anymore. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, so she wrote this book, and it's completely fascinating, uh, and it gives a kind of insight into what it might have been like to be a hostage at a court like that. Interesting. And she's very careful to say, like, you need to be obedient to your king. You need to be loyal, but you really have to watch out because at court, there's all these bad advisors uh, and you can really end into trouble if you're not careful. And she's also extremely worried about the state of his soul. So she spends quite a lot of time talking about how to be a good Christian as well. Uh-huh. But, you know, there's a sense where you can tell she's also really worried about his his salvation. Yeah. And so she spends a lot of time on that as well. So the book itself is is fascinating, and this is one of the reasons we know quite a bit about this family. We, I wish we knew more about Duodo. We we don't know a whole lot about her aside from what's written in the handbook. But what happens is eventually, um, both Bernard of Septimania and William come to a bad end, in part because they do not remain loyal to Charles the Bald. To make a long story short, so um, and then there's discussions of like there's a, another son, but it's hard to identify him and what happened with him. But this is a good example of a case where it was not a choice to send him, but he ends up becoming like the enemy of the person at whose court he was ah. present. Is so? Is William executed? Yes. <laughs> So, spoilers for any of you. It's a sad ending. <laughs> oh, this is fascinating to me. Yeah. So, so, and it's an interesting case, I think, too, because it's it's early. Uh-huh. So it's not. I don't. I, I doubt Martin knew about this. Maybe he did, but I mean, he tended to. Well, everyone's even even those of us who have intent to research have blind spots for sure. All right. So, what about the case of Littlefinger? Here we have Littlefinger who seemingly is given the run of the roost and he's treated very well. He's not a hostage. And yet he feels inferior to River Run and sort of grows up with intent to, you know, get revenge on River Run or you know something like that. Yes. Do we yes. have cases of, of this happening? 
I have to say that when I think about Littlefinger, I probably think less about actual historical cases. Uh And I think more about a kind of, um, maybe we could say a literary type in medieval literature, which is a kind of resentful follower Mm -hmm. who does bad things um, and is disloyal. And they're often seen as a kind of, you know, a foil maybe to the hero. Uh, There's, and they're also kind of like set up. It's, you know, I think in some cases, maybe it's a little bit of schadenfreude that this kind of person is supposed to come to a bad end. Um, (laughs) And which, you know, I think, well, we don't know in the books yet, but um, in this show, at least he does come to a bad end, but like it's, I think it's something that seems to me to feel sort of more literary well, I was talking with, and not necessarily in terms of his wardship, but I, w- I was talking with Caroline Larrington. She said that Littlefinger has a few parallels to the historical Chaucer, who... Oh, yes, yes, I have heard this, who yeah. kind of, you know, ascends the ranks and marries the right person and, you know, is good with numbers as well as he is with you know with the with the word and so he just be just because of his talents becomes invaluable to a great house and so he improves his upward mobility kind of like Littlefinger does yes I would I would agree with that analysis yeah yeah, that's another way to look at Littlefinger if I like subtract the issue of whether or not he was a ward or part of the household Mm -hmm. that he ends up serving, then I can think of quite a few cases in the Middle Ages where someone is just very smart and is able to rise up and become of great service, but is still seen as beneath the other people because of, you know, either a lack of good birth or a kind of perception on the lines of other people. I think like, again, because I'm an early medievalist, I think of another ninth century example, but there's a uh, advisor to the King Louis the Pious, whose name was Ebo of Rents, and people definitely wrote about him like this lowborn uh, person, uh, and how dare uh, he? But he he clearly rose up, yeah, yeah. Um, was a formal advisor. So I think this does happen. Um, and Cha- I like the this example of Chaucer too. Um, but I don't know. Somehow I think Littlefinger's ability to be so manipulative feels like something more true to literature than to well, and also, real world, if that makes any sense. I'm not sure there's sure. ever someone that, cl- I mean, he almost seems too clever to believe, <laughs> but it makes a great character. A I great wonder character. if this is born out of like an anxiety of someone who's of lower station, who really can't be trusted and, and sort of worms mm. his way into the ear of a great lord or something like that, that this can't go well. The, that person jumped above his station he must be ambitious in a way that we can't trust yes and i do think there's definitely that concern concern throughout the middle ages of someone who's unworthy rising up and being in a position of power and then not doing what they're supposed to but on the other hand i would say there are also people who rose up from lower status this because status wasn't like it was not as fixed i think as people sometimes think in the middle ages And they could rise up and they could be successful. We're probably less likely to kind of think about those people in comparison to Littlefinger. But to my mind, it makes me think about some of like Littlefinger's other characteristics. Like what is it about him that means he can't as successfully sort of rise up? And I think part of it is just this pure resentment about 
not being able to be with Catelyn Stark, right? right? He's really like I think he comes across as sort of affronted um in love, right? And so this gives him a kind of flaw as a character and that he isn't always thinking as rationally as he should as a result. Cause I think that's where we see him make a lot of mistakes across the books as a whole. Sure. Now, if he would have had his druthers and let's say cat requited his love, I, I guess I, I was curious about wards in that respect. Let's, let's say you did take on a boy from another house. Would it be common or would it be possible for that boy to end up marrying, you know, your daughter or something like that? It would absolutely be possible if, they were of roughly the same rank. It might even have been a means of helping make that happen. And we certainly have cases where girls are sent as wards with the idea that they will eventually marry someone in the household. Uh, uh-huh. They're sent to. So that happens with some um, some frequency, but it would need to be something that the families are agreeing on, right? right? right, right. Um, this idea of like an unequal match or match that the families disapprove of, that I think would have caused problems. Sure. Although without research, I wouldn't be able to give you an example. Yeah, yeah. So Tyrion suggests, and this doesn't end up happening, but Tyrion does suggest at one point to send Marcella to the Vale to marry um, uh, young Robert. Yes. And yeah. It's one of the plots he kind of. Yeah. Yeah. And he's, and he's basically saying until they come of age and before that, then he can, you know, he'll be a ward in her court. And and of course, you know, the the hope is that both families agree on this and this will bring a certain amount of peace to the family uh, between Correct. families. Yes. So that you're saying that that might be something that could be arranged. Yes. And I think this example of Marcella where, you know, Littlefinger has these three plots and he's trying to find out who's yep. betraying him. That's right. Like, That's right. I think these are all like good examples of how a princess could be used strategically in terms of marital alliances. Mm-hmm in order to kind of shore up uh, a, a kind of peace or to create a peace between two households. Right. Um, and so I think the fact that she's sent to Dorne is uh, definitely that has run resonances um, in a number of like medieval cases, both like including literary ones, but also like actual historical ones um, where a, a woman ends up kind of having to go to um, you, you could say maybe not quite fully an enemy, but kind of hostile um, territory and the idea is they're going to kind of create this alliance. Um, but yeah, the fact that she's going to live in Dorne for a while before she marries um, Tristan Martell, that's the name, I think, right? I think I, so, I'm yeah. remembering that right. Yeah, very good. <laughs> good memory. <laughs> um, see if I can keep my Martell straight. Uh, so I think that is, ap- yeah, I think that would have happened similarly if she had been sent to the Vale. Uh-huh. I think it's a similar situation. 